Good evening. We'll start with our motivation. Today is December 22nd, and ever since I first read uh, this story a few years ago, I always think of it at this time of year. So, uh, 103 years ago tonight, World War I was in full gear. There were thousands and thousands of young men in trenches with rifles in absolutely horrific conditions. It was called the Great War because it was the war to end all wars. And as we know, that hasn't happened. So that year in 1914, Pope Benedict XV who took office that September had originally called for a Christmas truce and that idea was officially rejected. And yet, there are many, many stories that have come from letters and diaries that relate something else that happened on Christmas Day in 1914. There's many versions of this story. One of them goes kind of like this. At the first light of dawn on Christmas Day, some German soldiers emerged from their trenches and approached the Allied lines across no man's land, calling out, Merry Christmas, in their enemies' native tongues. At first, the Allied soldiers feared it was a trick. But seeing the Germans unarmed, they climbed out of their trenches and shook hands with the enemy soldiers. Men exchanged presents of cigarettes, plum puddings, they sang carols. In the 103 years since, this event has been seen as kind of a miracle in Buddhist terms, an event that has causes and conditions beyond what we're able to know and understand. But it was a rare moment of peace, just a few months into a war that would eventually claim over 15 million lives. It's also a beautiful and heartbreaking example of how there is no external enemy there's no truly existent enemy. Because if there were, these men, these young boys really, would never have reached out to one another. They couldn't have, with goodwill and open hearts. They would have only have seen an enemy. But they didn't. When those in command learned of the truce, they reprimanded the soldiers. And such an event never occurred in the remainder of that war or during World War II. So in reflecting on this story, it's clear that we can put down the idea of the external enemy when our mind becomes afflicted.
And what does it take for each of us to do this? What does it take? If in fact we're doing what we're saying we want to do to work for full awakening, we need to have, we need to rely on every single sentient being. We can't leave anyone out. And so tonight, as we listen to the teachings on the perfection of joyous effort, let's really encourage ourselves deeply Whenever this idea of the enemy arises, we see that it's just our mind making up a very big story, a lie, in fact. And instead, to work hard with joyous effort to cherish all sentient beings and to continue working step by step attain full awakening. So, venerable children, I'm just going to check what time it is in Singapore right now. Right now in Singapore, it is 10.22 a.m. So she and venerable Dam Cho are sitting on an airplane. They would have boarded at 10 o'clock if all things are working the way they should. And they will be back at the Abbey tomorrow afternoon, barring any kind of problem. So we're looking forward to that. So tonight we're going to take a look at the perfection, as I just mentioned, of joyous effort, joyous per- perseverance. And um, Venerable's instruction was that this would be very interactive, so I'm counting on interaction, and if I end up talking all night, I'll be very sad at the end. <laughs> so... <laughs> right. Silent night, right. So we're going to start off with what is uh, perseverance, joyous effort. And my main source for tonight's talk is Geshe Sopa's Steps on the Path to Enlightenment. It's a beautiful, beautiful text. It's so accessible. And it's been just a joy, joyous, an effort to read this. (laughs) But it's so inspiring. It really is great. So he says this. Before we begin a practice, we have to want to do it. There you go. This desire comes from knowing the nature of the practice and the benefits of doing it. The nature of perseverance is joy in doing virtuous activity. Joy does not arise on its own. It needs an object. For ordinary joy, we have to eat something tasty, we have to hear something pleasant, or see something attractive, and so on. But, he says, for spiritual joy... The object is wholesome activity that benefits one's future lives or helps other sentient beings. If we must force ourselves to do an activity, we do it reluctantly, and as we all know, we don't accomplish it very well and we're grumpy. However, if we feel joyful, even if we encounter many problems, we'll be determined to accomplish the task. So we know this. 
we know this next statement in our heart. Joy makes any practice easy to do, continuously and vigorously. The perfection of perseverance is a special kind of happiness that keeps one going, no matter what difficulties occur. And Shantideva says it so clearly. He says, what is this perseverance? It's delight in virtue. And then Venerable Children's explanation of this is really, really down to earth. She says this, and she also at certain points calls it, calls it enthusiastic perseverance. So she says, this is the joyful mind that has the necessary effort and ability to persevere. It's not going to poop out in the middle, sludge along at the beginning, and fizzle at the end. It's going to have some life and buoyancy to it so that our whole practice is done with joy and not with shoulds, not with oughts, not with supposed tos, not with obligation, guilt, and all those other wonderful things that we bring along with us. So back to Geshe Sopa, he says, feeling delight in doing something negative is not joyous perseverance. So if you're thrilled that you got in the last word with somebody, if you're just so delighted that you were mean to somebody, that you just conquered them, you got your own way, your mind is thrilled with that, well, you can maybe kid yourself, it's joyous effort, but it's not. So fortitude and enthusiasm in the course of non-virtuous activity are, in fact, aspects of laziness. And laziness is one of the main enemies of religious practice. It's the feeling that other things are more important, so we just don't want to start a spiritual practice. Even if we wish to attain a positive goal, if we're lazy, we procrastinate, beginning to do the task. And if we do begin a practice, because of laziness, we can't accomplish our goal. So laziness is also taking pleasure in improper activities. So he goes on to say, so how do we begin this practice of perseverance? And he says, quite simply, all we have to do is to become interested in the practice. And it may be a false conclusion, but we only do things if we think there's a distinct advantage in doing it and a disadvantage in not doing it. And the amount of determination we bring to an activity is based on how vividly we see these advantages and see the disadvantages. So, he says, we've got to examine the benefits of practicing joyous perseverance and look carefully at the disadvantages of not practicing it from many different angles. So, I sent out questions to a number of people, hoping that it would give you some time to think about it. And we're just going to launch in with the first question. So, in your experience, what are the advantages of practicing joyous effort? Oh, wait, slow down. Not everyone at once. <laughs> You're assuming we have an experience. <laughs> I enjoy myself so much more, and I get to the end faster, and everything gets completed the way it's supposed to be. Great. Anyone else? Advantages of joyous perseverance, joyous effort. Well, there are a lot, but I, I think the main... The main advantage is um, that then things don't feel like effort. You know, there's a real sense of doing what whatever needs to be done, and it's fine. 
there's no resentment, no problems, no hassles, no really no distraction if my mind is really taking mm. taking delight in the virtue. Thank you. Actually, it's quite similar to what Venomous Wilton said. Um, I recognize when I'm, uh, let's say, study with uh, uh, joyous effort, then my mind is much more flexible and I can perceive the things much better, take them in much better. Mm -hmm. And I have this, you know, joy in what I'm focusing on. Online people got the questions too. Go for it. Responses. Uh, one is it helps our mind stay light and uplifted, which makes us feel better and brings happiness to others instead of bringing negativity and heaviness. Someone else said peace and contentment, not to mention a meaningful life, and then ability to endure any obstacles and hardships. Thank you. So let's see how many we got out of the ones that Venable uh, Geshe Sopa talks about. So obviously, joy makes any practice easy to do continuously and vigorously. We already heard that. Then he goes on to say that one of the first main advantages that is that obtaining anything of value is a result of perseverance. Then he goes on to say, and he's quoting uh, Maitreya, who explains that... Um, there is absolutely no way for us to attain any spiritual goals without perseverance. In, other, in another part of the text, the Armament for the Mahayana Sutras, Maitreya says, if you have perseverance, wealth cannot overcome you. If you have perseverance, the mental afflictions can't defeat you. If you have perseverance, discouragement will not overcome you. If you have perseverance, attainments will not defeat you which is interesting, and he goes and talks about that in a few minutes. So, more about if you have perseverance, wealth can't overcome you. Many obstacles come from craving affluence. Sometimes in our pursuit of material goods, we forget our religious practice. And sometimes having riches overthrows our practice. If we have perseverance, it's unimportant if we're rich or poor. We will not become distraught if we lack wealth, nor will we be completely absorbed in enjoying the material goods that we do have. And then uh, Geshe Sopa explains the perseverance of the mental afflictions cannot defeat us. And he says this second line refers to the intermediate spiritual goal, one's own emancipation from cyclic existence, to become free from samsara, we have to defeat the inner enemy, the mental afflictions of desire, hatred, jealousy, and so forth. Only with perseverance can we conquer these passions. It takes even more effort to accomplish the bodhisattva's aspiration to place all sentient beings in the state of the highest happiness and freedom. And then he goes on to explain, if you have perseverance, discouragement will not overcome you. And this, he says, is the most difficult obstacle to attaining this goal. Sometimes it's difficult to help a single individual because even with the best goodwill, we know this from our own experience, things go wrong. For example, one day a beggar requested some flesh from the Buddha's disciples. Out of desire to help the poor man, the practitioner immediately cut off one of his fingers and gave it to the beggar. But the beggar became angry because he wanted more. The disciple thought, this is too hard. 
I can't even satisfy one person. So how can I possibly help all sentient beings? Becoming disheartened like this is, lo is losing bodhicitta. And this is where he says we need the protection of joyous perseverance. And I've never thought of it as protection. If our perseverance is strong enough, we will not be discouraged by anything. Through diligent practice, we can develop spiritual attainments and progress to certain spiritual level levels. Yet, there is a danger even here. We could become conceited or simply relax and enjoy what we've accomplished. So this goes into the next thing. If you have perseverance, attainments will not defeat you. In that sense, our attainments defeat us if we become conceited and relax and have sort of got it because we stop actively wanting to help others. But, he says, this will not happen if we have joyous effort. The Bodhisattva levels say that perseverance is the principal cause for accomplishing the good qualities of Bodhisattvas because it's behind everything they do. A Bodhisattva's diligence is beyond our usual understanding. And one way to understand this, Geshe Sopa says, is to recite passages from the Guru Puja. So that one that we remember, inspire me to perfect far-reaching joyous effort by remaining undiscouraged and striving with compassion for supreme awakening, even if I must remain for an ocean of eons in the fiery hells for the sake of each sentient being. So he says, we pray that we will have the diligence to be able to take rebirth in the worst hell if that will enable us to save just one sentient being. We pray that even if we have to remain for eons in a blazing fire, we will not be discouraged. We will be joyful because of our great compassion and love. He says, this kind of perseverance can sound like a fantasy to those who have never studied, practiced, or, or experienced it. However, he says, this is not imaginary. This mental power can be developed. So the compendium of the perfections say that perseverance makes everything, including the highest enlightenment, possible. If you have great perseverance, completely free from discouragement, then there is nothing that you can't accomplish or attain. If we have perseverance conjoined with fortitude, humans and non-humans are happy to assist us. Why? Because if we take joy in working so that others can enjoy happiness, they will want to help us in return. So someone online mentioned the next point. Perseverance makes one's life meaningful. Day and night will be fruitful. Another advantage is that our good qualities will not diminish. Not only will continuous perseverance prevent the lessening of good qualities, it will lead to their increase. They will prof proliferate the way water lilies spread over a huge lake. So when our courage is strong, the challenges we face become helpful to us. Nothing is too difficult. We solve each problem quickly and attain our goal. So I was just thinking, we all have a really um, strong experience before we met the Dharma of doing worldly things and we infuse those things with joyous effort. Not all of them might have been virtuous, but 
I'm certain we did some worldly things that were virtuous. So what kind of what kind of activities, worldly activities, have you done in the past that were infused with joyous effort? And what difficulties did you overcome with a joyful, determined mind? Christina, someone online. Before we move on to that, someone asked, what's the difference between fortitude and perseverance? Fortitude and perseverance. Well, fortitude is the willingness to bear hardship. Joyous effort. Perseverance kind of sounds has a fortitude kind of feel to it. Um, joyous effort, joyous perseverance is just this huge desire of wanting to engage in virtue. The mind that wants to do that. That's how I'm done. Anyone want to add to that? Okay. Worldly activities that you did joyfully. And how did you overcome obstacles that came up? Because they do. Um... When I was active for uh, Tibetan Human Rights Organization, the first activities we did to, hmm, yeah, to raise money in a way to um, was going to a concert um, to a German band, Wir sind Helden. We are the, we are kind of we are the heroes, I think translated. And um, the um, Wir sind Helden, they have been human rights, Tibetan human rights promoters, so they, on stage, they um, said, hey, we have here some people from such and such organization, and they look for you to sign, um, to give your signature for uh, freedom of one of those political prisoners. So we all joyfully... <laughs> um, Effort went into the concert and ran around and um, uh, got these signatures. And um, there was, in fact, no problem in doing that, but it had a negative, negative touch because in our back mind was, okay, we get all these signatures we could use. Um, and the second thing is um, maybe also some members to do that. And yeah, of course, and we enjoyed our time listening <laughs> this um, rock music another. <laughs> sure. but they gave a voice to our cause <laughs> Tracy says uh, I felt joy at taking care of my elderly mother it was a difficult role mentally and physically but I knew how much it was helping her and from listening to teachings I knew it would lessen regret that mm -hmm. I would have and Cheryl says volunteering for an organization that combats hunger and also giving away offerings that came from my shrine. Seattle was quite progressive in the 80s and um, had a place for, uh, a residential place for people with AIDS called Bailey Boucher House. And for, I think it was about five years, I would go once a week and offer Reiki treatments to mm. people with AIDS. And um, I have to confess, there were many mornings where I would drive there thinking, I'm too busy to do this. Why am I doing this? I don't have time to do this. And I would get there and I would be so overwhelmed mm -hmm. with the beauty of working with mostly men, mm -hmm. uh, some women, um, and hearing their stories and seeing their appreciation. And um, it, it was so moving to mm -hmm. have... I, I gained so much more than what I gave, but mm -hmm. it was a beautiful uh, period of my time, my mm -hmm. life. Thank you. Another person online, and then I've got a story. Not mine. Okay. Someone said uh, garage sale for the alms fund. Lots of work, but 
with fun and humor, very rewarding and joyous. And then what came to mind for me is going to the gym and exercising. I had to change how I think about it because at first it was a lot of aversion, but mm-hmm. thinking about the benefits um, turned it around. This year, Tracy Thrasher, sorry, Tracy, I'm going to talk about you right now. She helped us enormously with putting out these Vinaya books. And there were so many edits. Oh, I can't tell you how many edits. And I can only speak about the musical scores. We had to redo those countless numbers of times. And I was starting to lose my joyous effort. But Tracy Thrasher did not lose her joyous effort. And um, it's just amazing that the amount of time and effort that Tracy invested in these books. Months, months, I don't know how long. But now we have these books and they're very beautiful and wow, so many people will benefit from these books. So thank you, Tracy. So according to the sutra system, after the historical Buddha became a bodhisattva, it took him three countless eons to accumulate enough merit to reach Buddhahood. So just hearing about this length of time makes me tired. It makes me very tired. When someone tells us we have to work this long in order to attain Buddhahood, we, I, become discouraged. We would consider the request to practice so long to be completely unrealistic. We would never even try to attain enlightenment if that were necessary. But a bodhisattva wearing the mental armor of perseverance, this is a phrase we hear, the mental armor is not disheartened even if it takes this long to accumulate the merit to help even one single sentient being. A bodhisattva would think it was worth it to live in the worst hell twice, three times, or even a thousand times longer than this if he or she could attain enlightenment. So if bodhisattvas would not give up knowing it would be so hard and take this long, then of course they would never give up on a shorter, easier task. So the commentary goes on, whether or not it takes a bodhisattva this long to attain enlightenment is not the point. The vast length of time simply illustrates the necessary level of commitment. So then we're going to come across this advice a few times, and it's something that I'm not doing enough in my practice. But here's the next bit. The Buddha said that simply admiring or having faith in this kind of perseverance is wonderful just admiring it. It is actually a kind of perseverance to think maybe it is possible for something so amazing to be true. I wish I could do it. Someday I will do it. This thought creates great merit. That's not so hard. (laughs) I'm talking to myself right now. I wish I could do it. Someday I will do it. So if merely wishing for perseverance is special, then there's no need to say how much, how extraordinary it is to actually have this courage. And Lama Tsongkhapa comments that we too can develop this kind of courage if we train our mind. All sentient beings have this potential to become perfectly enlightened Buddhas. We all have the capacity to develop a bodhisattva's courage to do anything to help other beings without hesitation. Then he tells us the truth. At present, our potential is latent. It's been covered over by negative attitudes, 
such as ignorance, attachment, hatred, jealousy, and pride for a long time. It is as if we've been asleep. So we can't do much more sleeping. But when we're awake, we have the potential to do hundreds of things. So this practice of perseverance will wake up our potential. Accomplishing this may take one's entire life. And even if it does not take that long, if we resolve, I will do this until I die, then all of our activities will be forceful and fruitful. Therefore, Sankapa says, we should train ourselves in this way. I will do this until I die. So the next question I sent out to people is, so how do we get this perseverance, this joyous effort going? How do we kickstart it? I just told you, but it wasn't a test. But you didn't know that before I sent the questions around. <laughs> One formula that I've heard a number of times that has stayed with me is that there's actually this series of mental factors that are helpful to develop. And so the first one is faith, and there are different types of faith. Mm -hmm. But specifically thinking about the qualities, the good qualities of something that we want to develop, mm -hmm. like the good qualities of concentration or the good qualities of faith itself or whatever mm -hmm. the topic is. And then that naturally brings a kind of aspiration. And when we have aspiration and strong aspiration, then that's when we're going to actually develop the joyous effort that wants to engage and that brings about whatever result we're aiming for. So that that series, it's probably spelled out in this section of the text. And uh, that's very helpful for my mm -hmm. mind. Yeah, thank you. Minimal tarpa. For me, it helps me to see clearly and look honestly and at my mind and see the advantages and the disadvantages of my own experience. I mean, just for my own well-being. And so I find that, um, you know, the flavor of your mind is just so different that if you can not distract yourself and just bear to observe it mm -hmm. and stay with it, I find that to be actually a motivating force. Someone online? Cheryl says, by remembering how fortunate we are to have met the Mahayana teachings and how difficult they are to meet. Mm -hmm. And personally, I like reading biographies um, mm -hmm. of people who have overcome great hardship to be successful. It's very inspiring. Um, this thing about thinking about the advantages, you know, we've heard venerable children often, often, often teaches what you know, what Sankapa says about looking at the advantages, and she says, you know, it's like being good salespeople. You know, you advertise the advantages of something first. But um, this fall, I, I got a lot of teachings on this particular topic, and I really spent time, more time than I have ever have, in thinking about what are the advantages of the things that I want to accomplish. And I was astonished at how quickly my mind was, like, enthusiastic about doing certain things. It was, uh, it's like, you know, how many times do you have to listen to the teaching before you actually apply what you've heard? In a deep way, I ask myself. But it's really true to really think about those advantages and um, it sparks some interest. Another thing that w came out of that teaching that I, I have thought about a lot as a motivating factor, too, is that Geshe Geltsin said quite a few times, he said, you know, we hear how difficult it is to progress along the path or 
you know, it's going to take such a long time and we get discouraged and we think, oh, I can't do it. But then you think if you don't do it, you're going to spend the rest of your life, I mean, all future eons, mm-hmm. wandering through the lower realms. And we don't think anything about that at all. Yeah. Uh, well, he had a point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The first part was the same of just reflecting on the benefits of the long-term goal you had. But I think as well as um, for someone prone to discouragement, it's just to reflect on the impermanence of any obstacles that you might come up against. Mm-hmm. And seeing that even if, if you, even if they do arise, they'll pass. And they're not so much to contend with if, in terms of the, compared to the benefits of what you're aiming for. So you're right, I kind of told you earlier, but we're going to hear it again because I think we have to hear it again. So we get handed this script. And in the commentary it says, first think, I want to be the leader of all sentient beings. This is the script. I want to free them all from suffering. I want to help them attain bliss. And then remind yourself, It is most difficult, if you have to remind yourself, to attain enlightenment for the benefit of all sentient beings. It takes a long time. One has to sacrifice a lot and endure much hardship. But, he says, picture yourself confident, happy, and with no reservations. Even if you have to practice for so long, no matter how much difficulty you imagine, your mind still says, okay, no problem. I'm happy to do it. This kind of preparation gives the mind enormous power. It is armor made of something precious and strong. Nothing can pierce it, and it can deflect every obstacle. So there's the script. We have to say it. I'm not sure we'll believe it at first. But you know, with repetition, in time, I think it sinks in. So... The commentary goes on to say, if we train ourselves this way, our enthusiasm will gradually become as firm as a bodhisattva's diligence. It is important to train the mind this way because it will make every practice easier. If we're able to produce this kind of thought even for a moment, we will have the courage to face every difficulty we encounter while helping other sentient beings. Even for a moment. This heartfelt enthusiasm in itself creates more merit than years and years of practicing generosity and the other virtues. This enthusiasm, just itself, that's pretty great. In addition to accumulating a limitless amount of merit, perseverance purifies innumerable obstacles and negative karmas. So the antithesis of ignorance is joyous perseverance. It is the supreme cause of an irreversible practice. According to some sutras, the sharpest practitioners reach this irreversible point even before the path of seeing. While attainment of this path marks this point for most practitioners, the very slowest of the bodhisattvas do not become irreversible until the eighth bodhisattva level, but that is the very last point. By the eighth bodhisattva level, every bodhisattva has reached the point at which he or she will not reverse. No matter when it is reached, training and perseverance is the cause for this irreversible stage. 
So the commentary goes on to say, basically there's two aspects to the practice of joyous perseverance. One is getting rid of the hindrances to perseverance, in other words, eliminating laziness. And then on the positive side, developing the necessary conditions for perseverance. So the next question is, in your experience, what are the obstacles to joyous effort? The angry, selfish mind. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And we'll talk about just the mental habits I have that work against it. I mean, the habitualness of them, I find mm. that to be the sticking point. Mm. Lack of strong conviction in the teachings, lack of self-confidence, and the eight worldly concerns. Mm. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> Our friends, the eight. Ignoble activities, is that what... <laughs> one of the translations. Yeah. You know, there are so many ways when I look throughout the day, if I'm collect, counting, okay, so how much virtue did I actually engage in today? There's so many ways that I pilfer and waste moments of the day. Um, uh, I confess too many times looking at the news or, you know, the unfolding dramas of <laughs> what's happening in the world and, uh, or just myriad other ways that that I allow my mind to be drawn off into things that are not important. Mm. And uh, what a waste. Mm. Um, For me, it's definitely a lack of compassion and also generally a lack of concentration if I lose my focus and a lack of wisdom and understanding of reality. And then, yeah, the traditional answer is indeed it's uh, laziness and procrastination. Mm. Mainly for me, it's discouragement of it's too hard. So just give up. Mm-hmm. Not being diligent and watching out for negativity and then countering it. So just letting mm-hmm. my mind go its usual way and all sorts of self-defeating talk is there and I don't do anything about it. Mm-hmm. So there goes the energy. Mm-hmm. And someone else says, not seeing progress on the path, which is the self-centered mind again. Mm. Yeah, those are good. Thank you. So according to the text, um, there's a number of things. The first obstacle is that although we know that the result is worthwhile and attainable, we still don't want to pursue it, and this is a form of laziness. The second hindrance is another type of laziness, and it's discouragement. Thinking, How could I possibly accomplish this? Can't do it. I'm just a... (laughs) And then he says, there's actually a third obstacle that bars us from entering the path that is not explained here, and it is never to even consider whether or not the result is attainable. So fortunately, we're not having that problem right now, I don't think. Let's rejoice about not having that problem. So, procrastination. We understand the value of the goal. We learn about the path to attain the goal. We recognize that we can accomplish the goal, but we delay and we think, this is great. I love it. I love this practice. I love it. Let me tell my friends about it. I'll tell you about it. I'll do it later. I've got more time. 
second obstacle is not deliberately postponing practice, but being attached to inferior activities in pursuit of ordinary rewards, such as wealth, health, praise, or fame. I think we all know those ones quite deeply. Well, let's just go to the first type of laziness, actually, which is the first thing that opposes perseverance. And this attachment to low things, and they're called low in the text because they're inferior to bodhisattva practices. So he says, we pursue in sensual enjoyment by going to the theater, playing sports, drinking, going fishing, doing other th- things. We're willing to do just about anything to gain wealth or fame. Out of attachment to non-spiritual things, we'll do many non-virtuous actions. We have no concern about how our activities may injure others. We don't even start a spiritual practice because we're overcome by a desire for temporary pleasure. And this is called the laziness of attachment to ordinary activity. I think we've all tasted that one. We may still, <laughs> we may still have tastes. Gobbled it. <laughs> Venerable Trini says, swallowed it whole. Yeah. <laughs> the second and third types of laziness arise when we have some desire to engage in the practice of wholesome activity. The second type of laziness is the common understanding of the word. We just have no energy to do something. Tired. Too tired. We see it's good. We'd like to do it. And even though we're not attached to low activity, we just postpone doing that virtuous activity. And we think to ourselves, yeah, this is a good practice to do at some point. I'm going to put that in my diary for 2018. I, I should do it now, but... I'm not going to, because I've got other things on my list I have to do first. Christmas, yeah. Cleaning Prajna Cottage. (laughs) The worst way to think is, I'll do it when I get old. And not quite as bad as that is, uh, not this year. We're almost at the end of the year, come on. I'll do it next year. It's soon. Not this month, but next month. Not this week, but next week. We think, I'm supposed to do this in the morning, but you know what? I'm going to do that practice in the evening when I have more energy. (laughs) Then, in the evening, we think, you know what? I was mistaken. I'm going to do it in the morning when I have more energy. (laughs) Even a person right on the brink of death, let's not do this one, everybody, can think... I've still got a bit of time. I won't die right at this moment. I heard a story from the best friend of this woman who was dying, who was a Catholic nun, on the day that she was, she was actively dying. And she kept insisting that she would do the rosary in the morning. Let's not do that. This attitude always makes us put aside our practice in favor of something else. The third type of laziness is to belittle ourselves. We want to do virtuous activity, and we don't have a problem with procrastination, but we think, I'm stupid. I'm untalented. This goal's so noble, it's meant for intelligent people. Not for me. These practices are hard to do. Venerable Children says so. 
there's so many steps, there's so many numbers, there's so many rules, there's so much learning. I can't do it. It's not for me. I'm not cut, I'm not cut out for this. So we discourage ourselves constantly. Do you know that script? I know this one really well. Self-denigration. The result is that we have no enjoyment or enthusiasm in our practice. That's kind of a wake-up call, isn't it? So there are three methods to eliminate the obstacles to perseverance. One, to stop each kind of laziness. Uh, So there's the stopping the laziness procrastination, stopping the attachment to low activities, and stopping discouragement. So, having heard about these kinds, these three types of laziness, which one is your forte? Which one do you excel at? Three-way tie. <laughs> it's a three-way tie. Yeah, right. Depends on the day. Then, Tarpa, were you going to say something? Discouragement. I can say something. Okay. I would say discouragement, but it's not always explicit. It's sort of like, oh, I'm not there yet. I shouldn't. You know, these are advanced practices. I'm just a beginner. But I, I, I it doesn't consciously. Those words don't go through my mind. I just sort of mm. don't even have interest. I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When these things do come up, since it's a three-way tie, the second part of the question is, what do you do? Do you do anything or do you just let it ride? Just follow the story, go with it. Or do you try and interrupt it? For example, I have, um, also easily get distracted by temporary happiness. And let's say uh, I like to talk with friends uh, about this and that. And... Um, how I keep myself or how I get back on track is um, I remember um, sometimes that this time is precious and I try to steer the conversation then at least into the direction of Dharma because most of my Mm -hmm. friends are Dharma friends and I excuse myself then kindly when it's time to go. I think if I can just identify that, oh, this is laziness. Just even thinking that, that terming the discouragement or terming my procrastination as laziness is a bit of a jolt enough that I kind of try and take a breath and go, okay, <laughs> and try and work and apply the antidotes. Yeah, my self-centered thought doesn't like to think of discouragement as laziness. So that kind of snaps me around. Christina? So Cheryl says, uh, thinking that the time of death is uncertain and um, getting a strong feeling that if I died at that very moment, the state of my mind could propel me into an unfortunate rebirth. I would say of the three-way tie, the one I'm most successful, have been most successful with is in discouragement. Somewhere along the line a few years ago, realizing that discouragement is just a mental habit that does nothing. Nothing. So now when it comes up, I can, I can really just stop it and go, look, this is a habit. It does nothing but slow you down, and it and it sits back down. It doesn't mm. it doesn't catch me as much as it used to. Mm. Now the attractions to any other thing, but that one's harder to deal with. <laughs> There's such a qualitative difference between doing something with joy and doing something without joy, mm-hmm. and uh, I, I suspect that we've all had moments of joy in our practice, and I certainly have. And when I start feeling joyless, 
I find that very uncomfortable. And at a certain point, that will get my attention, and mm. then I know I need to correct and just apply with something. And usually it's death and impermanence that mm -hmm. stirs the pot, at least, mm. you know, to get me going in the right direction. She listens to Venerable Children teach and thinks about the positive effect she has on so many people and how if she perseveres in her practice in some future lifetime, she'll be able to affect others in the same way. That's great. So the text goes on about procrastination. It's knowing the benefit of Dharma practice as an antidote. But this procrastination just doesn't want to do it right at this moment because there's some other activity that seems important to do first. This laziness is based on the idea that we will always have time. I get sucked into that one all the time. So there's three steps to prevent the mind from straying to this misconception of procrastination. Meditating that we will definitely die, that the time of death is uncertain, and that the time of death nothing helps except Dharma practice. So this leads into the next question. Which of the three steps in the meditation on death and impermanence inspire you to push through procrastination? And why does that one get you more than the others? I think the one that really gets my attention in this meditation is the time of death is unknown. And there was a recent story in the news that even made the New York Times. It's just a shocking story of this billionaire couple in Toronto. And they were Jewish people. They were very successful. They were extremely generous people. They were deeply involved in the Jewish community because Honey Sherman, the woman, um, her parents were Holocaust survivors. And they, um, they, were they were found in their home, I think, a week ago today or something. And they had both been strangled. So he's 75, she's 70. They have four children. One daughter's about to get married. They have grandchildren. They're pillars of the community. Like, the whole world was like, what? And their <coughs> funeral happened yesterday. There were more than 7,500 people in Toronto at this funeral. And everyone is absolutely in shock. So you've got these lives that, you know, look like they're, from the outside, beautiful. Something happened. They don't know what happened yet. There's three possibilities. You know, that it was a double suicide. Well, that, no one has ever seen examples of that. The second possibility is that it's a murder-suicide. And then the third, the, second pos the third possibility is a double murder. So the children are trying to grapple with this. You know, having your parents yanked from this life in that brutal way. You know, it's just... I mean, and there's, there's examples of people who, you know, survive a plane crash and everyone else dies. People who survived horrendous conditions, you know, during the World War II, when others didn't. So that one in particular really gets me. We have no idea when we're going to die. 
And then I really, when I start seeing, if I can, get myself together enough to see that when my mind is going south, you know, is that the last thing I want to say to somebody? Is that the last thing I want to think? That gets my attention. The one that gets me the most is that nothing else at the time of death is going to matter except for Dharma. Um, Because it really puts it into a frame of like, well, then what am I wasting my time on? Um, And if I know this is important, then why am I waiting? And why make it so painful? Because the discouragement mind or the procrastination mind or just being so busy, it's not a joyful place to be. Whereas if I was to engage in the things I know are important... Um, even if there are difficulties involved, the, the mind would be so much more happy. So, um, reflecting on that, when I die, there's going to be pain then if I'm not doing, if I haven't done what I've wanted to and what's going to be meaningful. But even in the process, um, it's so painful. Well, this is an enormous topic. <laughs> I have way more material than... <laughs> yeah. Thanks. It's not a silent night. I'm so happy about this. So we're going to go to the next question. The next question is, how do you work with discouragement about attaining the goal of full awakening? I mean, it comes up. It comes up for people, even high-level bodhisattvas. When someone really understands what's involved, apparently, then you get discouraged. So the discouragement that we're feeling is just the tip of the iceberg. Sort of. So, what do we do? What have you done? The discouragement of working through this. Well, uh, three things. One was in this teaching on um, joyous perseverance. Um, I'd never really heard anybody lay this out like this before, but Geshe Gelson said, you know, if you don't have discouragement about this, you haven't really thought about these teachings. That it is long and it is hard, and you need to really think about, you know, to own that. And for sure, in that case, discouragement will come up, and then we practice to overcome it. So I thought, in a way, that was a little bit reassuring. It's not mm-hmm. like indulge it, mm. but also pay attention because it's not easy. And so, of course, discouragement will arise. It doesn't excuse it, but it somehow made it not so terrible. Mm. And then I heard another teacher say, I think it was Jetsuma Tenzin Palmo, when somebody was talking about enlightenment, and she said, oh, don't bother with that, just try to be kind. <laughs> How about that? <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, holding both of those things, <laughs> those things in mind, I, 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 don't, I don't have the wisdom of either one of those, but it, it, it is a very clear and vivid goal in my mind to become fully awakened. But much more more immediate is, can I have kind speech today? Can I open my heart and love the people I live with today? And I find that taking those little teeny tiny bites is really helpful. Well said. I remember hearing a nun say early on, um, we're going to be here anyway. (laughs) <laughs> so right. why don't we practice dharma? We're going to be here anyway. And if you think about the mind stream being beginningless, that's true. Um, and that goes hand in hand with this 
uh, thought or this concept that comes in this level or in this in the section on discouragement that the suffering that it that will be encountered in accomplishing enlightenment is nothing compared to the suffering of cyclic existence that is endless. And mm-hmm. if I think about that, that really does move my mm-hmm. mind. Yeah. Great. Thank you. So in this section, the text says, a Buddha has gotten rid of all faults. He or she has no mental obstacles, no misery, and no worldly trouble, because all the mental afflictions and their stains are eliminated. In addition, from the positive point of view, a Buddha has completely developed every possible good individual and environmental physical quality, as well as the mental qualities of compassion, love, omniscience, and power. There is nothing lacking in a Buddha's total cessation of faults and accomplishment of positive qualities. That alone is helpful, too, you know, to think that there's there's an end to the misery and the suffering. Now, I put this in very big print. We may become discouraged because we think, I have difficulty getting rid of even one fault. So how can I get rid of them all? I find it challenging to maintain just a few imperfect positive qualities. So how could I possibly achieve all of them? And this is an even bigger font. This is like a warning sign for us. A negative attitude about oneself is dangerous for those who have taken the bodhisattva vow. Very dangerous. Big print. It's in yellow here. It is losing bodhicitta to think you cannot attain this goal. We should block this train of thought as soon as it begins, well before we reach the conclusion of, forget it, I can't do it. These are strong words. We need to (laughs) think about them a lot. So Shantideva has developed a remedy for self-contempt so that he could meditate on bodhicitta day and night, even while lying on his bed. So here's some advice from Shantideva. First he says, look at the Buddha. He has achieved perfection and eliminated all faults, so he's the highest authority. Whatever he says is true. He would not be deceitful, lie, or teach something perverted. The Buddha teaches that every sentient being has the same potential to attain Buddhahood that he had. Before attaining enlightenment, the Buddha had many, many lives. Sometimes he was a human, sometimes an animal, sometimes an insect, and so on. All those who have become Buddhas started out just like us. They weren't Buddhas from the beginning. They obtained a special human life, came in contact with the teachings, and seriously practiced them over a long period of time. Slowly, their mental afflictions and ignorance decreased, and their spiritual qualities increased. With a great deal of effort and courage, they attained enlightenment. Because all living creatures have the same potential, all of them can attain enlightenment if they meet with a proper method, have enough courage, and exert enough effort. Right now, flies and insects have an inferior physical body and mind, so for the present they can't produce these qualities, but they have the potential to do so someday. So Shantideva asks us to ask ourselves, since even animals can attain Buddhahood, why can't I do it? 
Unlike animals or other unfortunate beings, we have a wonderful opportunity to accomplish enormous things. It is easy to see this by comparing spiritual development to an arduous physical task. Our ability to complete the task is severely compromised if we have to do every part of it by hand. If we have the right machine, the work will be accomplished easily. Similarly, in samsara, the human life we now have is best equipped for accomplishing our ultimate goals. Humans have the intelligence to understand the benefits and disadvantages of virtue and non-virtue, to deduce from present circumstances what type of causes we created in the past, and infer from our present actions what will happen in the future. With this kind of mental aptitude, of course we can attain enlightenment if we persevere with courage. We should encourage ourselves with this type of praise. Okay, so I'm going to do some skipping now, and I'm going to go to the point that um, Venerable Seppel referred to. And there's this beautiful new book that came out that was gifted to the Abbey. It's Shantideva's Guide to Awakening, and it's a commentary by Geshe Yeshe Tobden. And this is a teacher I think the Venerable Children encountered in Italy in 1979, 1980. And there's this section. Um, he's, he's doing a commentary on chapter 7, verses 31 and 32. So I'll read those two verses first, and then I'll read what he says about these. The forces that secure the good of beings are aspiration, steadfastness, relinquishment, and joy. Aspiration grows through fear of suffering, and contemplation of the benefits is to be attained. Then verse 32 is, Therefore, leaving everything that is adverse to it, I'll labor to increase my diligence. Through aspiration and self-confidence, relinquishment, and joy, by strength of earnest application and exertion of control. So this is what he says about those two verses. Understanding its importance, we must generate enthusiastic effort and relinquish discouragement and weariness, mounting the horse of bodhicitta and traveling the path that proceeds from joy to joy to the ultimate happiness. If we're told to reach a certain place on foot, we feel very discouraged, but it is another matter if we go there by car. Likewise, if we're urged to attain Buddhahood by way of the path of joy, we will not feel depressed. The task and the responsibilities of a bodhisattva are to help all beings by attaining Buddhahood through purification of all negative karma and the accumulation of all virtues. In order to accomplish this, one needs support. The four supports that help a bodhisattva and aid the development of enthusiastic perseverance are aspiration, firmness, joy, and rest. So what are these four? Aspiration. The fear of suffering within cyclic existence generates the desire for liberation. In order to attain liberation, we must practice the three trainings, whereas in order to attain enlightenment, we also practice the two methods, bodhicitta and the wisdom that perceives em emptiness. We need to develop a deep understanding of the necessary requisites and then strive to attain men attain them. If we're certain that through Buddhahood we will be able to benefit all beings, the desire to attain it will arise in us spontaneously. 
in the same way that we naturally aspire to do something we like. The second one, the second support, is firmness. This is the attitude of examining the advantages and disadvantages of a certain action. And if we find it appropriate, not abandoning the determination to perform it once we decide upon it. Therefore, before practicing the Dharma, we must consider whether there are any reasons for doing so and what we will miss if we don't practice it. In this way, we will see that there are many advantages and we will strive without hesitation, with an unwavering mind and without second thoughts. If we practice or listen to the Dharma because our friends do so, we are not going to have a strong strong foundation and our practice will not be steady. Not having realized its importance for ourselves, our motivation will not be our own, but borrowed. Another unsound reasoning for attending Dharma courses is to have a vacation. The third support is joy. Children never tire of playing, and we should have the same type of enthusiasm and joy in listening to and practicing the Dharma. And the fourth support is rest. And this word in Tibetan means to relinquish. When we practice the Dharma, the intensity of the effort makes us tired, and it is therefore a good thing to rest in order to be able to start afresh and with renewed vigor. We must generate enthusiastic perseverance and the four factors supporting it and be mindful at all times of whatever practices we're engaged in. So those are the four supports. Share some examples of joyous perseverance that you have seen in others that inspire you. Did anyone have time to think about this one? Venerable Trini just repeated Venerable Tupton Children's name multiple times. Yes. When I was studying psychology at university, I worked for a while as an um, assistant ABA therapist, applied behavioral analysis, where you were working with um, young autistic kids um, doing kind of repetitive drills to try and help them with connection and communication. Very hard. <laughs> and um, I was not well suited to it, um, being an only child and not having much familiarity with that. But... <laughs> But what, watching parents, the parents, mm. diligently like, try and connect with their autistic children who couldn't make eye contact, who just were just completely in another world, just their perseverance to try mm. and even just help them be able to say, to express the distress that was going on inside, that, that was very moving. Mm. Thank you. Anyone who's an authentic spiritual teacher obviously is a fabulous example of joyous effort. I was talking to Venerable Jigme yesterday about a great example that she's come across in letters that inmates have written. And so I've got one. Um, there's so many, and if you go to tuptonchildren.org and go to the prison dharma section, there's just endless examples of people practicing in just mind-blowing situations, and they're doing it often with a joyous mind. So here's one story from that section of the website. Segregation is a place filled with rage, with amazing anger and hatred. Prisoners yell and scream constantly, 24-7, non-stop. There's no respect or consideration for the next person. I have never encountered, even at my age and after all these years inside, the kind of vile, 
filthy language, racial, racial slurs, and utter contempt for other human beings as I did during my 29 days in segregation, in some kind of solitude. It was very sad. There's no contact between segregation prisoners that would allow physical fighting, so instead, they spit at each other, they throw feces or urine on each other. Some of the prisoners are obviously mentally unstable, which either contributed to their placement in segregation or developed as a result of serving many years in segregation. It was difficult to listen to the screaming, the whining, and the arguing of unstable people kept in cages. There are, I believe, a great many atrocities being committed. There is an abundance of inhumanity. It is difficult to be aware of all this, to be in the midst of it all, and not be overcome with rage. Listen to this. This inmate writes, But my practice never faltered. I never allowed anger to raise its ugly head. I never allowed myself to have an ill thought or word for anyone and generated compassion for all sentient beings. I held fast to the Buddha Dharma. It was my life preserver in a sea of hatred and misery and applied all your teachings and advice. The mind is an incredibly wonderful thing once you begin to understand and learn how to control it. So I have to conclude that I'm beginning to make progress and my faith in the Buddha's teachings has become, un become unshakable. There is a certain satisfaction without pride or ego in knowing that I have altered my life significantly and that it will have a profound impact on any future rebirths I may experience. Lives that will allow me to continue studying and practicing the Dharma and eventually attain enlightenment. Much of what I have been able to accomplish and what I have become as a person, I owe to you. I'm sure he's writing to Venerable Children. I'm eternally grateful. Thank you from the bottom of my heart. So regarding joyous perseverance, any suggestions on how to deal with Christian prayers with family during the holidays? Do I sit and think loving kindness? Oh, I can answer that one. I used to take my mom to Mass as a nun. And I would sit there and I would feel critical thoughts arise, for sure. But I looked around the congregation and my mom went to church until she couldn't, which was almost at the end of her life. And I saw all these people that I grew up with, that I knew for my entire life, and these people were still going to church. You know, these people were the age of my mom, and they were devoted to something that was a bit beyond what I could grasp. But the hymns were beautiful. I could see that they got a lot out of going to church. And it uplifted their minds and hearts. It did something for them. And so, you know, if you're getting together with your family and they're saying grace or singing Christmas carols, you know, look at the positive parts of it. What are people actually trying to do? They're trying to celebrate something. And, you know, it works for them. And so I never found going to Mass with my mom. I think I was probably a a much better ex-Catholic <laughs> as a Buddhist nun than I was 
when I thought I was a Catholic. I just had deep appreciation for what the faith was giving to people and what they were bringing to the Mass and all of that. Minimal tarpa. I want to just add that anyway, you can support, I think, people in having a spiritual faith, whatever it is, mm. is quite important. I really am aware when I'm away from here what people are taking refuge in. Mm -hmm. And it's not usually a religious or spiritual practice. Mm. And so anytime people are finding something that works for them, I think it's quite important to try to find ways mm -hmm. to support that because the bulk of people aren't and they're miserable. Mm -hmm. They don't have, when push comes to shove, a lot of times they don't have much to rely on. So anyway, we can support people in having more tools just to deal with this life and their eventual death and all the things that happen, I think is helpful. Oh, the person says, thank you so much. Okay. And earlier, uh, to go back to your motivation, someone had said that a movie was made about that. Um, the Christmas Day Truce? Yeah, it's called Joyeux Noel mm -hmm. in 2005. And the description is in December 2014, excuse me, 1914, an unofficial Christmas truce on the Western Front allows soldiers from opposing sides of the First World War to gain insight. Thank you. Great. Okay, so in conclusion, and this is Geshe Sopa. If we don't develop perseverance, we will not strengthen our ability to attain Buddhahood. We all have one of the special causes necessary to attain enlightenment, and that's Buddha nature. Right now, our Buddha nature is so dormant, it almost seems as though we don't have it. Our Buddha nature has to be woken up and strengthened. If we're always lazy and discouraged, not only can we not bring out our Buddha nature, but additional faults will bury it even deeper. Even small things, as we know, are hard at first, but the next time we try them, they're easier. However, if we're immediately discouraged and put everything aside, every further step will be blocked. In addition, we'll do many negative things in this life and it'll be difficult to train ourselves in other lives. So even if we're not able to practice joyous effort exactly as Tsongkhapa explains it, we should aspire toward doing it. We should wish for it and make an effort to begin. And all throughout this commentary, it really emphasizes wishing for this. And I have really not put effort into that. So we should wish for it and make an effort to begin. If we, if we take just some small steps, our perseverance will continue to increase. If we fight against discouragement, and that's certainly what I have to do in my case, it's a fight, set our sights on joyous effort, and try to improve as much as we can, we will develop spiritually. If we practice in this life, the same activity will come much more easily in the next life. Eventually, we will accomplish the perfection of joyous effort, joyous perseverance. When we have great joy in the practice of virtue, we will want to engage in practices that we have not yet done, and our current practices will go, grow stronger. With joyous effort, all the other practices can be accomplished and our goal attained. Let's do it.